we are back. We talked a bit about uh, educating people a little bit about this history of the pilgrims and Thanksgiving, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not sure I could use a better source than Richard Shankman's I love Paul Revere, whether he wrote or not. An action, that's an actual quote from uh, our President Warren Harding. Uh, this book was described as a new collection by the author of Legends, Lies, and Cherished Myths of American History. Shankman sounded off in Chapter 2 about religion and had this to say about the pilgrims around whom this Thanksgiving holiday uh, revolves. The pilgrims might not have objected to being called somber, for they were a serious people, but they didn't look the way we think they did. They didn't wear ridiculous tall hats and shiny buckles, and they weren't partial to black, and they didn't forsake jewelry. Nor were they always revered. Until the 19th century, scarcely anyone paid them, their Mayflower Compact, or their Plymouth Rock, much mind. Even the hint that the pilgrims were once ignored is, of course, to court controversy. One may well say the pilgrims never landed at Plymouth Rock, which incidentally they didn't. And yet the evidence clearly shows that for, for the first 150 years after their arrival, little mention was made of them. Attention was paid not to the pilgrims, but to their more successful cousins, the Puritans of Massachusetts Bay, who subsequently absorbed them. By the middle of the 18th century, people in Plymouth began touting the pilgrims' achievements, but the movement to turn them into American heroes subsequently faltered when the leaders of the effort made the mistake of backing the British in the Revolutionary War. No, not until after the war did anyone think to even give them a holiday. And as late as 1789, they remained inconsequential enough that the Plymouth town clergy thought nothing of running his field horses through the founder's graveyard. The pilgrims, in fact, weren't celebrated at all as national figures until the 1820s after a speech by Daniel Webster. They did not become firmly entrenched in the popular imagination until the Victorians turned a pilgrim secular festival into our Thanksgiving. Noted Shankman, to this day, the pilgrims' identity remains somewhat vague. Americans don't even know who the pilgrims are, and in their ignorance, mistakenly identify them with the Puritans. Even presidents get this wrong. In his farewell address, Ronald Reagan, twice in one paragraph, referred to the Puritan John Winthrop as a pilgrim. Actually, the pilgrims and Puritans were two different groups. The pilgrims came over on the Mayflower. The Puritans arrived 10 years later, settling the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Shankman notes that both groups had saints and strangers, saying that the saints among the pilgrims sought religious liberty. That's true enough. But the impression has been given that they were seeking it here because they'd been denied it in Europe. That's not quite true. While the pilgrims had been persecuted in England, they hadn't lived in England for a dozen years. They'd been living in Holland. And in Holland, they enjoyed complete freedom of worship. They left Holland not because they couldn't pray as they wished, but because they wanted a place of their own in which to pray. Holland had proved so tolerant of the pilgrims that their children had begun to adopt Dutch manners and ideas. If they remained, the pilgrims feared, their children would stray. And frankly, I, I can't resist quoting from the National Lampoon's 1964 high school yearbook, which included a section of a fake history text for student Larry Kroger titled The American Spectacle. In this phony history book, this is what uh, Doug Kenny and P.G. O'Rourke had to say about the pilgrims. In 1620, a tiny ship sailed from Holland with 102 souls bound for the verdant Virginia colony. Landing in rocky Plymouth, Massachusetts, the Mayflower's passengers disembarked, surveyed their new home, and stoned the navigator. That first winter was hard, but when spring finally arrived, a friendly Indian named Squanto 
who had seen the arrival of their great canoe with laundry drying in treetops, <laughs> showed them how to plant corn, first by inserting a kernel, then putting in fish as fertilizer. This method was later improved by the pilgrims themselves by deleting the fish and replacing them with Indians. Noted Kinney and O'Rourke, Imagine the festive scene that first Thanksgiving must have presented. The harvest had been a fine one, and the oaken tables fairly grown under the weight of the New World's bounty, which included steaming bowls of yams, trenches of fresh rutabagas, whole cauliflowers, hot buttered flax bread, broccoli, sweet and sour potatoes, roasted burdock, wild thistles, acorn squash, chard, eggplant... (laughs) Kohlrabi, cow peas, okra, wild turnips, curdled deer cheese, and many other modern favorites. If you've never read a copy of the 1964 High School Yearbook, my dear listener, I recommend you find yourself a copy. We were privileged to have P.J. O'Rourke on this program as a guest many years ago. As an aside, uh, near the end of our talk, I couldn't resist telling him that I I thought it, it might be the funniest thing I'd ever read. To which he sort of chuckled himself and said, yeah, I saw a copy of that recently. It it does hold up. Now, for the past uh, month and a half or so, we've devoted part of every program to discussing the fact that it's 50 years past the assassination of John Kennedy. We're not going to talk about that today in any length, except to note that uh, the Sacramento Bee did publish a special by Roger S. Peterson titled Seven Reasons to Reject the Warren Report. I'm sure Roger will be happy to come on this show in the next week or two and talk with us a bit about his reasoning. I I can tell you that we are of a like mind on this. Now, in conjunction with the JFK assassination and an awful lot of items that have been in the news since we've been doing this program, dating back to the year 2002, and I have to say that it is with dismay that I see the item in the news of late that the museum located in our nation's capital in Washington, D.C., which is a museum dedicated to our media, is currently featuring an exhibit created with Paramount Pictures titled Anchorman, The Exhibit. This features costumes and props from Will Ferrell's 2004 movie Anchorman, The Legend of Ron Burgundy. Man, Peace in the Bee quotes the museum's vice president of exhibits, saying, There really was a time in news history when men owned the anchor chair and women were a novelty in the newsroom. The movie gets that right, though in a very over-the-top way, and we wanted to show the reality behind the humor. Gee, do you think the fact that Paramount is producing a sequel to Anchorman has more to do with this exhibit in the museum than its actual contributions to the history of the media? Well... You make the call, dear listener. Now, we very much appreciated the coverage in the Bee uh, some months back about the folly of the city fathers of Dixon falling for a con woman trying to convince them that they would put a giant movie studio on the outskirts of Dixon. We do have to wonder if this same uh, disease has moved down Highway 99 to Elk Grove in the wake of Richard Chang's piece in the Bee a few days ago, titled Elk Grove, a tourist mecca? To quote from the piece, Elk Grove, the large Sacramento suburb often viewed as a bedroom community, sees itself as a vacation destination. The city has spent $45,000 on a sleek tourism website and is focused on organizing large events to attract visitors 
hoping to overcome its sleepy image. Yes, apparently they're, they're trying to focus on an Old Town Elk Grove city center uh, as something they could build a tourist attraction around. Elk Grove Mayor Gary Davis has compared the city's festival strategy to that of Gilroy, which does famously host a garlic festival every year. Of course, the problem with this comparison is they actually do grow garlic down in Gilroy, which does give them an excuse to hold such a festival. But the piece notes the city recently launched its website aimed at promoting tourism as inelkgrove.com, which highlights places to shop, (laughs) dine, and play. With the headline, Picture Yourself in Elk Grove, California, the site displays images of colorful sushi and beautiful parks. Apparently part of the strategy here is to rectify the fact that there are 159,000 residents in Elk Grove with fewer than 30,000 local jobs. That's kind of by definition what happens when you build a bedroom community. Hello? But I don't know. I think Mr. Marillon is planning a trip down to Disneyland in the not-too-distant future, but um, sir, maybe you just want to go to Elk Grove. It's a damn good idea. You know, I could see a theme park in Elk Grove, various rides and attractions. It's a tough world after all. That'd be a nice attraction. How about Redneck Mountain? Maybe Pirates of the Suburban Developers? How about Roger Rabbit's Cockfight Spin? I have a lot of cockfights down in uh, Elk Grove, I understand. Anyway, I hope Carissa Carpenter is not listening, because, boy, she may be showing up at Elk Grove talking about Disney North. We'll see. All right, we're down to about five minutes left, and I I got a choice of topics before me. I think I'm going to take a science one, because we're trying to keep things on the up and up. And... Once in a while, you come across an item where you just stop and go, I had no idea. Another positive to this story is that it allows us to insert a small bit of poetry. And we know that Dr. Andy would be proud of us as we quote Jonathan Swift's uh, much misquoted poem, which is, So naturalists observe a flea, hath smaller fleas that on him prey, and these have smaller fleas to bite him, and so proceed ad infinitum. Apparently, marine biologists have discovered a virus that may be the most abundant, well, the economists called it organism on the planet. I guess I would call it biological entity, because viruses are not really organisms, and they're not really alive in the sense of a bacteria or us being alive. And and they're not alive in the sense that a bacterial cell or one of our cells in the human body is alive. Noted the economist, somewhat incorrectly, what is the commonest living thing on Earth? They answered, until now, those in the know would have probably answered Pelagibacter ubique, the most successful member of a group of bacteria called SAR11. These jointly constitute about a third of the single-celled organisms in the ocean. Turns out that's not Pelagibacter ubique's only claim to fame, for unlike almost every other known cellular creature... It and its relatives have viruses which attack it. Now, apparently back in the 1990s, a scientist took a look at the DNA and material you could dredge out of the ocean to discover that, well, Pelagibacter is a third of what's out there in in terms of bacterial cells. But scientists suspected that it must have viruses that prey on it. And to test that, they borrowed a page out of the the playbook of the... um, 
homeopathy people and started diluting seawater down. At a certain dilution, they reasoned there may be one or two different types of viruses in the, um, the amount of liquid they have left. They then uh, cultured that with some pelagibacter and found that in a certain percentage of cases, the bacteria was succumbing to something in the water. In fact, they've now found four viruses that parasitize pelagibacter. The upshot of this was that a virus dubbed HTVCO10P was the commonest. It thus displaces its host as the likely winner of the most common living thing prize. Of course, the magazine notes that does depend on your definition of living thing. They say some biologists count viruses as organisms. I don't think that's true. Uh, The reason is that a virus relies for its growth and reproduction on the metabolic processes of the cells it infects, meaning viruses themselves can't be parasitized. They They don't do work on which another organism can free ride. Anyway, curious stuff. Bacteria. Bacteria. Look, there's bacteria. 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 You might not see them, but they're there. Bacteria. Bacteria. Everything you touch. Bacteria. Bacteria. That about does it for today's show. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I am your host, Douglas Everett. Before we go, I want to thank uh, our plumbing correspondent, Ivo Kovacevic. It's always fun to talk to Ivo. We do hope you have a happy Thanksgiving and a happy Hanukkah, and we'll see you next week at the same time. Bacteria. Bacteria. Look, bacteria. 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 You might not see them, but they're there. Bacteria. Bacteria. Everything you touch. Bacteria. Bacteria. That's right. Salmonella bacteria. Salmonella grows on raw chicken, especially old chicken. Moist foods like our salmon, staph bacteria on the left, and strep bacteria on the right. Salmonella, Shigella, Clostridium refringens. If you didn't wash your hands, they would become breeding grounds for bacteria. Bacteria? Look, there's bacteria. Bacteria. Bacteria? You might not see them, but they're there. Bacteria. Bacteria? Everything you touch. Bacteria. Bacteria. That's right. Salmonella bacteria. Fever. Cramps and fever. Dysentery. Fever. 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 Vomiting. Vomiting. Chill.